I'm uh, not a Tibetan Buddhist, but that won't stop me from ripping off one of their great stories. We get our material where we can find it. One of the great stories from that tradition is of uh, Milarepa, who began his life, like the Buddha, in a very wealthy family. Milarepa's um, father died when he was young, and apparently Milarepa, to maintain a sense of... um, to keep some power in the family or make sure he survived, uh, picked up uh, sorcery, black magic, uh, this tradition in that region of the world called uh, Bon Arts. And uh, so basically he learned how to conjure all kinds of spells and magic. And uh, so... Uh, after a lot of escapades, Milarepa started to realize that uh, it wasn't really attaining any peace of mind, though it was allowing him to do all kinds of feats and stuff like that. He really wasn't uh, attaining any lasting sense of purpose in his life. So he... uh, renounced the sorcery and all that, and found a teacher and became enlightened in his uh, late 30s. And he took to living the remainder of his life, or at least uh, quite a good deal of his life, I should say. He was a traveling uh, monk, so he probably at times passed through cities, but he lived a lot of his time in a cave up in the Himalayas said that he ate so little that when his sister found him, he had basically was skin and bones. And, uh, but uh, he was considered to be a master of the spiritual practice. And uh, yet, when Milarepa was 45 years old and living in the cave, one day after collecting firewood, he returned to his cave and found that it was filled with demons and the demons would leave. And Milarepa possibly could have gotten rid of the demons if he had reverted to his old ways of sorcery and black magic, but he chose to not, and he tried every other way to reason with them to chase them out, but they wouldn't leave. And so finally, Milarepa said to the demons, uh, I'm trying to remember the story in as much detail as I can, said to the demons, I'll stay in this side of the cave, and you can stay in that side, and you can be uh, and do whatever you want. You have my permission. And uh, all but one of the demons, once he gave them permission to stay there, disappeared. But one very, very frightening demon remained. 
and was a very scary, massive demon that was not to be dissuaded. And Milarepa tried all the techniques of ignoring, uh, uh, greeting, welcoming, anything but uh, what he had to do to finally get to a place where he could deal with the demon was he had to walk across the cave and put his head in the demon's jaw. And he said to the demon, if you're real, bite my head off. So there comes a time in our spiritual practice where all the tools we've used to get rid of our smaller demons, concentration, uh, the tools we've been using so far, uh, may work on our smaller fears, the busy mind, the uh, irritations. The Buddha's first noble truth, the Buddha lists, not only the uh, difficulties of old age, sickness, but also the daily frustrations of life, the sicknesses, the, the one sutta the Buddha calls other people at times can be like mosquito bites. And so we use our tools to deal with these uh, challenges, but there might be one great or a couple of great pains losses, abandonments, disappointments, the, to use the phrase of Pima, children, the places <coughs> we're scared to go, uh, the shadow. And uh, we can develop all sorts of strategies to avoid this shadow. Some people minimize it if you bring it up. What about that painful episode. Some people will deny it even happened. Uh, and sometimes, like Milarepa, we'll use black magic to get rid of these disappointments. Black magic, in our case, being drugs and alcohol. Those substances which give us the illusion that we can consume something and all of our demons and all of our uh, abandonments can go away. And then there's that time when we finally realize it doesn't work and we're stuck. And in the story of Milarepa, of course it's a fable. The cave represents Milarepa's mind. The demons represent the memories, the fears, the difficult emotions that uh, are present in our lives. And Milarepa's strategy at first of just saying, okay, you can be in that side of the cave and I'll stay in this side, is very often analogous to the way we can practice our concentration practice, which is give permission for whatever worry or fear or anxiety, whatever uh, to-do list, irritating event needs to arise. Just allow it to be over there and bring your mind to something that is skillful and create an essence, uh, the presence of something that creates a sense of uh, counterbalance. The Buddha actually refers to this strategy in 
so much of the suttas, right effort in and of itself is defined as um, cultivating skillful, peaceful uh, mental content as a way to counterbalance, to bring our attention away from those experiences that cause suffering. But there still will be in our lives something very often that won't uh, be so easily uh, gotten rid of. We might have some uh, experience, we might have experienced the death of somebody we love in our families, someone we care about, we might have our own traumatic histories. We might have uh, just those really uh, painful experiences of shaming that might occur, not, if not in one's family, perhaps in the world for who we are. Some of us have just felt like outsiders from the moment we can remember and not loved, not accepted, not cared for. So we all have this shadow and generally in life the way we work with this shadow is by in our own way running from it we uh, as I said we can use drugs television, food shopping all kinds of consuming to try to, for a little while, alleviate the presence of that which is not wanted. And eventually, when those addictive strategies fail, we might even turn towards uh, spiritual practice as a way to uh, uh, look for the quick out. Um, a lot of people come to Buddhist practice, to yoga, to 12 step, to whatever it is we go to, and the, you know, the agenda is, okay, I've given up my addictive strategies, just give me the clue so that I don't have to feel this, you know, just give me the magic meditation, so loneliness, sadness, fear, pain, will go away. And believe me, if it was there, I'd give it to you. Really, I would. I mean, I'm not that selfish. I would give it away to you in a second. I grew up in a Buddhist family, and I would have stumbled upon it by now. And uh, unfortunately, though, um, there's no magic bullet. But there are practices that can completely change the way that we relate, hold, and be with our shadows, our uh, unacknowledged grief and sadness and pain, there are ways that we can turn towards this experience. And I'd like to move us into one of these practices. So, again, the underlying agenda is not uh, at this stage of our spiritual path uh, to 
get to a place where suddenly everything is uprooted and we live in constant peace. Uh, even the Buddha, right before the Parinibbana, it's interesting, the Buddha was visited by his own personal demon. And Buddha said, I see you, Mara. The Buddha knew how to recognize, even had a name for his personal, you know, uh, shadow. Mara was basically, for the Buddha, this energy that would say to the Buddha, you know, why are you doing all this hard spiritual work? Let's just go and live in splendor back in the palace. Let's give this all up. So the Buddha, the Buddha's uh, demon was pretty much a, a, an energy just wanted to have an easy life to escape all the hard work of spiritual practice. We all have our demon. Sometimes our demon says, this is too hard, I can't be with this. I need to use drugs or I need to go back to Facebook. <laughs> I need to go back to anything that will distract and pull my attention away from being with my demon and learning how to, be, learning how to address it learning how to hold it. So the practice I'd like to talk to you about uh, is called RAIN, and it's pretty much a variation on mindfulness. Uh, mindfulness, the Buddha has a very long sutta on it. It's a wonderful sutta. It's called the Satipatthana, and it's filled with tools. But the problem is... Um, the Satipatthana is a sutta that you could spend literally 70 talks covering. I know that because Joseph Goldstein has given 70 talks on the Satipatthana. They must be pretty boring but uh, to get to 70. But uh, in my experience, when we're in the midst of a retreat... We need a tool. We need tools that we can use and get a handle on uh, with a little greater ease than that. Uh, the but the Satipatthana, the mindfulness practice, the four foundations—they're wonderful, and uh, I would definitely encourage learning them because they can be the foundation for one's entire spiritual path. But for the sake of today, RAIN is a, a kind of an abbreviated version that was developed by Michelle McDonald. Michelle McDonald was actually a teacher that I had the joy of attending a retreat with in the jungles of Thailand, surrounded by monkeys. So I got to hear Michelle uh, talk about RAIN while Gibbons were sitting in the doorway watching her and literally monkeys about that far away. and uh, We were on, on this lake in the middle of this jungle. And so rain goes like this. When a difficult experience, energy, memory, a fear, anything unwanted arises, and you've already tried to, to uh, do concentration, which means to bring your awareness back to a skillful uh, anchor, the breath, body sensations, you've tried gratitude, you've tried all kinds of skillful reflections, and still there's your shadow right there in the cave of your mind, 
um, not going away. The first practice is to recognize. That's what R stands for. RAIN is, uh, what do you call it when you? Acronym. Acronym. Most acronyms I should give you an advance warning kind of are terrible. <laughs> There's always some letter in there that really doesn't really work that they sort of force in. So beware when you hear an acronym. But this one's kind of good. So R just simply means recognize. And by which this can mean one out of two things. You can actually simply name or note what is present. Uh, simply, oh, here's a thought, here's a memory, here's a, a physical sensation, here's a, a mental image, here's a bunch of words in my mind. That's one way you can do recognize, and it's a perfectly appropriate way. I tend to do it a little bit different. I, if I have a recurrent visitor, I like to give it a name. And I've used all different kinds of names for my private demons over the years. Uh, I don't like using a negative name, like, you son of a bitch. <laughs> Not very helpful. That starts resistance immediately. It's important that, uh, that the name sort of be something that just uh, reminds us that here it is again. And it's a way to welcome it. But the name does something that's much more important than just uh, recognizing its presence. If I'm greeting something and calling it by a name, I'm not confusing myself with it. I'm keeping that which experiences my consciousness or my awareness is kept separate from the shadow, whatever it is that's arising. So I can turn towards it, greet it, not run from it, but I'm not confusing myself with it. And very often when a thought or a fear or something arises, our tendency is either to run or to become one with it, to take it on as my thought. Well, it's in my mind. It has to be part of me. It's who I am. This is never going to go away, this thought, this image. So I might as well claim it. And really naming it creates a kind of different relationship. I'm reminding myself that I or my awareness is different from this visitor. It's not always there. There are times in my life when I'm not with this fear, this sadness, this grief, this worry. And there are times in my life when I am. But it's not me. So However you try to do recognize uh, is up to you. You can simply note what kind of energy is, you know, body sensation, thought, image, or you can name it. Uh, sometimes I've found that my biggest shadows are internalized voices of my dad, kind of a violent guy. So I'd say, oh, there you are, Bill. Nice to see you again. My dad was, uh, in many ways, a kind man, but when he was drunk, he was very violent and very, uh, he would be very insulting, very belittling. And so whenever I have those thoughts of, you know, come up, of like, oh, 
what have you done with your life? Blah, blah, blah. Oh, there you are, Bill. And that's just greeting the demon. So A is allowing. Allowing the demon to be there. And by which I mean um, allowing is not going into the thoughts or the mental component. Allowing is simply undermining our tendency to run away or try to get rid of or try to reason with. It's just allowing the shadow, the demon, the visitor, the, the fear to be there. Creating a space. Sometimes we might need to bring in awareness of sounds, body sensations outside of it. We need to uh, maybe bring to mind something that will be a self-soothing mechanism. Uh, bringing to mind a reflection of something that's peaceful, if that's necessary, or going someplace where we're comfortable. What we're doing, again, is we're not trying to get rid of. As I mentioned earlier today, um, Daniel Wegner, the psychologist, showed that whenever we try to get rid of something, it actually tends to backfire. It tends to actually make our struggles worse. That doesn't mean we can't find peace. Far from it. We can. But the old, the sort of ingrained way we deal with difficulties by trying to shut them down, get rid of, suppress, you know, exile, judge ourselves, all those tend to backfire. So allow. Allow it to be there. Now I is possibly the most uh, important. I is investigate. And what that means is you've got this, I'll use an example. Suppose there's a scary conversation we have to have with somebody. In my case, one of the scary conversations is with, always with my teacher, Noah, because Noah always reminds me of my dad. He doesn't look at all like my dad. My dad didn't, wasn't bald with tattoos, but, uh, but, but the energy is somewhat similar in that when I was a kid, my dad was a very, you know, had some control in my life. And so when I'm with macho guys that have any sense of, I feel have any sense of uh, input in my life, I tend to have, a, I can be a little bit reactive. So um, investigate is we are first going to see what happens when, uh, what is this uh, fear or activation comprised of? So in my case with Noah, when I'm with Noah, a lot of the times my I find myself kind of argumentative because that's the way I'd be with my dad when he got into one of his sort of capricious kind of moods. I would try to either argue or show how smart I was. And so I go into the same activation. <laughs> like, I know more than you. So you can't tell me what to do. It's the same technique I did with my dad. So instead of going into that, what I do is first investigate what comprises this um, experience, this anger, this fear. The first place is always in the body. If there's an activation 
Uh, if it's fear, my stomach's going to get tight. If it's something to do with abandonment, loss, or grief, my chest will always be feel hollow. If it's something to do with feeling overwhelmed, too many responsibilities, too much going on, invariably my shoulders will be tight. If it's a feeling of anger, being abused, not taken care of, my jaw will be very tight, my forehead will be very contracted. So that's investigating the body. And then we can also investigate what's going on in the mind, not the thought, but does the mind feel, as the Buddha said in Chitta Nupasana, do, is the mind very compact? Am I just only thinking about that, that person? Or is the mind spacious? Is the mind jumpy? Am I jumping back and forward from this unwanted visitor to something else? Or is my mind very tired and sluggish? What's the mood, the emotional flavor of the mind? Last, you can then examine the thoughts from the outside. Once you've felt I and mean, investigated the body and the mood, the emotional activation, just see then what are the thoughts like? Are they long and are they very filled with images or are they filled with then this is going to happen, and that's going to happen, where they're predicting the future. Are the thoughts coming rapid fire? What's the, how is these thoughts trying to uh, get my attention? Are they whispering or are they shouting at me? Are they predicting terrible outcomes in the future? How is the, this visitor working on me? So we're investigating it piece by piece. If we take it all on as a gigantic experience, then we won't get very far. The reason why fear and difficult emotions are so powerful is because they tend to arise on many different levels, the body, emotion, activation, thoughts. And if we just relate to fears, oh no, I'm frightened, or oh no, I'm angry, then we'll be overwhelmed. So, investigate in essence means to break something down to its constituent parts, starting with the body. We start with the body because the mind for us by now is the most compelling thing. Your mind probably has the ability to, as my teacher Tan Jeff says, uh, the mind is like, is like somebody who comes up to you in the street and drugs you, puts a thing over your head, pull, you know, the next thing you know, you wake up in Tangiers without a liver, you know. <laughs> That's what our thoughts are like. You can, we can be just minding our own business, and then this thought goes, oh, have I got bad news for you? And you go, oh, really? And it's like, just come with me. And you're like, oh, shit, this is terrible. Here I was having a nice day, and, you know, I was at one... Dharma Center, and I was having a beautiful time, and now I'm in, you know, the catastrophe that's sure to happen when I get back. So that's what our thoughts can do. So we want to stay first a little bit away from them and investigate the body. That's the safest place. The body doesn't have a, an ability to whisk us off into horrific futures. And the body we really can't compare. We don't really take body sensations that personally. Thoughts, though, we take very personally. We tend to believe, oh, I'm the only one who's got this thought. 
I'm the only one who's got this suffering, this fear. And so if we unpack first from the body and then the emotions, we're sort of moving up the chain until we come to the thing we most take personally. And then we don't listen to the content, we just notice how are these thoughts working on us. Now finally, N. Uh, when Michelle teaches range, she uses N just to mean not identify, which means don't identify with uh, whatever's visiting. I think that's a terrible use of the letter N. So I have taken the liberty of changing it. And I use N to mean nurture, which means whenever there's a repeating demon or shadow, there's something uh, in our past that we've been running from, a feeling, uh, an experience, a memory, an event, uh, something that we don't want to feel. And for me, nurturing is basically the practice of sending reparenting, sending kind thoughts to um, whatever it is that seeks our attention. So, for example, when I have my activations with Noah and I find myself, you know, or I, have a, I know I have a conversation that's going to be difficult to have with him and I'm lying in bed and I go into my body and I find my stomach's invariably very tight. That's my... I'm having a conversation with Noah, physical experience, tight stomach. And instead of just saying hello to it, oh, there you are again, you know, act, you know, the Noah experience, the fear of talking with a, a, a man who's very macho and, you know, at times difficult, knowing what it is, allowing it to be there, not trying to get rid of it, investigating how it feels, what are the sensations that make it up. And then N is sending thoughts of kindness to this thing rather than trying to get rid of it. So, you know, I, I, I see that there's all these feelings still of growing up with a drunk father that, and being frightened that haven't been, they're still seeking loving and attention and care. And rather than wishing they would go away, my job is to be gentle, kind, to offer to basically, in essence, be a, the, the kind parent that I didn't have at that age. It's okay. I'm allowed to be scared. I'm allowed to be frightened. I'm allowed to be uh, angry. I'm allowed to have this feeling. It's okay. You're allowed to be there. In fact, I'll take care of you we'll find a new way through. So it's this very reassuring thought that we're sending to it. And when we nurture, we're replacing the, we're generally beginning to replace the fear of the visitor with a different kind of uh, uh, relationship, not one of, oh, my fear, my, my uh, sadness is inconvenient, it now becomes, oh, my fear, my sadness is something that is something I'm going to take care of. Yeah. So um, that's rain. It's uh, going to be part of, I hope, your practice. Today you've spent the day uh, basically when difficult or intrusive memories uh, or fears arise, you've been just bringing, you've been allowing it to be there, but you've been bringing <coughs> your mind to a 
uh, another object. Today, what I, from here on, what I'd like you to do is instead first acknowledge, greet it, allow it, investigate it, see what comprises the visitors in your mind, um, and nurture it if it needs nurturing. Ajahn Chah, used, uh, who's the founder of the Buddhist tradition I practice in, a Thai forest monk, Ajahn Chah, used the metaphor of uh, insight practice as instead of bringing awareness back again and again to an anchor, just allowing the mind to reside spaciously. So when you're sitting and you don't have a visitor, just allow yourself to be fully present, hearing the sounds, feeling the body, feeling the breath, being with all the rich sensory experiences you have available to you. And then when you notice something is visited, if it's simply a distraction, just hi, untangle your mind from it. Uh, to use another metaphor, sometimes like any, when we're in our practice, sometimes any thought or distraction is bait, and we're the fish. Right? That looks yummy, this thought. What I'm going to do when I get back? You know, what's for dinner? <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'd like to lie down. Oh, I. You know. So we grab the bait, and if it's just something that you see doesn't have a lot of uh, heaviness, or it's not something that's activating, then just unhook your fish, your mind and allow you to swim freely again, come back to the present, just allow the bait to go. But there will be, there might be, something that's a little bit more loaded. Um, an image, a memory, a feeling, an emotion, something that's much more challenging. And those are the ones I'd like you to practice rain with. Now, how can you tell the difference between something that you can just let go of and something that you need to investigate? Well, there's a couple of ways. One, uh, if it's something that's got emotional history or something that needs attention, you'll be very reactive to it. <laughs> You'd be like, oh, not this. I, I don't want to go <coughs> unhook me. <laughs> if it's simply something that's not particularly activating, like, ooh, I wonder what the drive back will be like. Oh, I wonder what's going to be uh, for lunch. Is it still cold? You know, so those kinds of things, there won't be this franticness. The mind will just be caught, but you can, you can release it. There won't be this, your fish won't be frantically trying to get off the hook. But if there is a sense of, oh no, or a sense of, physical dread or a sense of heaviness or if the thing keeps coming back this is the biggest tell again and again and again your visitor returns that's something that needs investigation that needs welcoming that needs allowing that needs to be unpacked so um, I hope there was something of value there I'm going to now turn it over to uh, some questions about uh, 